This is Dr. Megan Golaski, and you are listening to Wild Healers, a podcast from sage, empowered, and passionate women bridging the gap in a polarized world of healing. Episode 7, Racial Disparities in Healthcare, with Kiki Beswick. The wall has been built between Western medicine and alternative healing, and it's time to demolish it. If you're ready to see what could happen when we dare to explore uncharted territories of healing, then join your hosts, holistic physician Dr. Megan Golaski and certified professional midwife Sarah Rosser. You're listening to Wild Healers. Welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wild Healers. I am Sarah Rosser, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Megan Golaski. And today we have a very special guest who I am very excited to introduce you all to. And her name is Kiki Beswick. She is a doula, um, a birth assistant, and she's also a perinatal educator in Minneapolis. Um, And since you all cannot see us, I think it's very important that you know that she is a very powerful black woman who I met at the farm. In Summertown, Tennessee, just like, what was it September, Kiki? Yeah, not long ago. Yeah, just in September for a midwifery conference. And um, even though I was supposed to be teaching this particular event, I found Kiki to be a leader and someone who I could learn a lot from. And so I'm very, very excited to have her here today to teach us. Uh, Kiki, thank you so much for being with us. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you. That was so nice of you to say that. I really enjoyed my week there. Um, I am a doula and perinatal educator for primarily people who are incarcerated or in transitional phases, I guess. Um, I do a little bit of doulaing for um, a hospital in Minneapolis, just like on-call stuff. Um, Pre-COVID right now, I'm not trying to be in the hospitals as much, but I will if that's where it's at. Um, Yeah, I just think that parenting education has just been like a piece of where I've, or not even parent, birth education, parenting, all of that kind of blends together, um, especially and when times change, I guess. I notice like generational differences, of course, in parenting and um, ideas of birthing and what you know the mom might say at a birth versus what the mom, the the grandma I guess <laughs> of the um, what grandma wants for the birthing mom versus what the mom wants and you know how to navigate the I don't want to make this person mad but I want to do this for myself um, and I guess reframing how to look at you having a baby being pregnant not being as like a burden, but like being a thing where you're contributing back something. I always think of the things we do as like a circle of life or a cycle. Um, I don't think of it as having clients, I guess. I just kind of call them my baby mamas, but it's, I learn from them how they lean on me. You know, it's, I learn about the differences between parents, even if there's like the same amount of, parents in the household and kids, like how different generations and different ethnic, I don't know, races, however you want to say, um, 
different parenting based on different racial backgrounds. Um, I might use different words, I guess, <laughs> that I'm a little bit more comfortable with. But if, of course, if there's different words or words that are maybe a little bit more politically friendly, I guess. Not politically friendly, but, you know, more intersectional. Sure. Please let me know. Because I think that, I know that I, <laughs> it, it's a time where people are waiting on Black people not to learn from, but to just uh, open their mind to our experience and things like that. But I think sometimes white people are quicker at knowing the new terms and things like that. So <laughs> I'm not, of course, opposed to keeping that cycle going, even though it might seem like it's time time to listen to black people i guess of course but um yeah i think it's always a cycle <laughs> yeah i think we're all together like we're all learning together yeah and as we can learn from you i mean i, I feel like i learn a new word that i'm supposed to change or use every day mhm you know so i definitely feel that too <laughs> yeah <laughs> Kiki, are you in in your birth assistant work? Are you doing any any home birth work? Yes, I only do um, birth assisting for home births. I don't do them as much as doula calls because it's uh, in a more rural area, a couple hours south of the cities. But um, every time I go, I learn something new, <laughs> and it's awesome. I went to one maybe end of March last. And it was super awesome. Like, yeah, I don't want to say easy, but for her, it was like, I don't want to say easy, but for her, it was like each birth, it was easier for her to take control. And I could totally see, she was like, this is my fourth baby and my last baby. And she was so in tune with it and her, you know, experience in the water and everything. And it, it's just a good uh, reminder of how different birth can be outside of the hospital, depending on, you know, your preferences. <laughs> but um, I definitely noticed the difference in ease, you know, visual ease for people giving birth at home. It's like, I, I noticed how much more comfort mm. and relaxation yeah. and just the surroundings can change your body. And the middle of birth, it's like really interesting how primal, I guess, you get. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I can't even imagine what kind of contrast you're seeing if you're also working with people who are incarcerated. Um, yeah. So are you, are you, are you coaching those people throughout their pregnancy or are you with them during their birth? Tell me a little bit about your work there. Yeah. So I do, um, I, uh, I'll connect with the mom before she um, goes into labor birth, you know, all that stuff. And then, um, <clears throat> so we have our, our, our prenatal time and depending on when we connect, um, we have com conversations based on like trimesters, things like that. And a lot of it ends up being almost like a social work kind of thing. Um, where as, um, doula, uh, being a doula in community with people who are not incarcerated. It's very 
different where they, you know, might ask me for like, where's a, like a the cloth diaper wearing class or where can I go? Where's the best place for me to have a uh, birth class and things like that, where when I'm inside the facility with this parents, um, I need diapers for when I get out. I don't know what my CPS situation is going to be. I don't know. Um, they have a hold on my baby right now. And I don't know what that means for when I have a, when I deliver her in two weeks or whatever. So it's, um, it's a lot of like navigating that with them. And instead of just being like a birth support, it's like a, the whole like surrounding of you, when you have a baby, you need to have a shelter and you need food and you need a job and you need all these basic things. And uh, you know, you even going to jail can like take that away from somebody, even if it's for a month or something. So um, it's very interesting being a, a doula for um, the incarcerated population because it's like, I can't believe you're, we're, we're meeting in prison. Like, it's like, they're totally like my homegirls. They'd be like fr my friends or people I would graduate school with or like my, fr like my cousins or like, you know, like things like that where I'm like, dang, it's really like, it sucks to be in here with you because you're just, we're literally on the same page. We're both 23 or whatever, but you're, you just like got caught up one night with somebody and now you're in jail because you were driving the car or whatever, you know, um, so it's definitely interesting to be able to go in the facility and have those conversations, but then also leave at the end of the day and be like, I I'm lucky enough to take that stuff off my mind at some point, but they're definitely always thinking about it. So I try my best to be a good resource point for them, but I, I um, don't want to move away from like the birth path because it can it can be so much to be pregnant in prison or jail and have, you know, your hierarchy of needs, I guess, jeopardized. Um, so it's like, and they do blend together. So it's, a, it's um, interesting to like walk that line with them and not always be able to answer their questions, of course, cause I'm not like a CPS worker, but, um, let them know that like somebody is looking into it or somebody cares about it, it, or um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term, like writing a kite, but it's basically um, somebody, you know, you can't really like text or anything in there. So if you needed something um, where like, if you needed to talk to your doctor, you can maybe call the hospital and the clinic and then the nurse can get to the doctor for you or something. It would be, um, they submit a note to somebody who then gets that note to whoever you need it to get to and in a facility of like 600, 700 people <laughs> and you're passing a sticky note around, really, it's like how soon can you get a service or how well can it be done for you? Um, and it's a lot, uh, I see a lot of like personality taken out of people when they're inside just, um, because they do everything so 
sterile, not not sterile like like it's clean, but it's like sterile like um, if you get a, a cavity, you just get your tooth pulled. It's not like they're going to work with you on filling the cavity or something. So it's like if I make this one decision while I'm in, incarcerated, is that going to change my whole life down the line, or can I just decide this? For, for me and my family now and then work on it. It's like, they don't get those answers right away inside unless they can talk to their, you know, parole officer or case manager or whatever. And they don't always reach out. So it's just like, you know, they're always, they always feel like one of many and being able to say, you, you, we, I don't have too many, you know, of you that I'm talking to, but you're, if if you're one of many, I want you to make make sure you feel like this is at least personalized for you, because I don't I hate that feeling of thinking that there's whole populations of people that aren't getting like therapy or they're not getting their medicines or um, you know all the things that we might take for granted. Um, they really have a hard time getting it. Like if they need to go to the nurse, we, we have co-pays and stuff for a nurse or for, you know, clinic visits or whatever, but um, they always have to pay $5 and it's not like they get paid even $5 a week. You know, it's like not easy for them to come up with the $5. So, and I, of course I'm not a medical professional, but I can give them information, evidence-based information, you know, and leave them with something versus them waiting a month or so. Um, I've had moms inside, um, the women's prison here, they do ultrasounds on Thursdays and I've had moms, you know, um, be told that their ultrasound looks funny and then not having to follow up ultrasound for like uh, three weeks. And they're like, is, am I okay? Is my baby okay? Is so, so there's, you know, a lot of stuff that gets left undone or unanswered for them. And it's just it's not only stress on the mom, it's stress on the baby that she's carrying and maybe even her family, if their family's trying to figure these things out too. So it's, um, it's nice to be somebody who can show them that I, that people care and that you're not going to get forgotten about, like at least on my watch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That and- is amazing work. I'm, so thankful that you do that. I appreciate that. I feel like I may might be maybe babbling about it a little bit because there's so much that goes No, please that. do. This is fascinating and beautiful. So you blab all you want. This is yeah, great. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I don't I don't think that I really understood the extent of your work in, in this. And that's I mean, it's just mind blowing to me thinking about you know, it's, I mean, Kiki, it's ridiculous over the last two weeks how much we have been awakened from our sleep about the need for uh, Black midwives and Black doulas um, in, in this culture that, that you and I are in more so than maybe all of our listeners. But um, hearing, hearing you talk about this and it's like, goodness, like <sighs> the, some of the disparities that I'm just not even slightly aware of um, because the the incarcerated population is, you know, completely disproportionate between white and black people. And so um, how, how did you get into the work in, 
in working with incarcerated people. How, how did that happen? Um, so I, gra- when, when, when I graduate college, 2018, so a couple years ago, and I was looking for an internship, um, maybe now three years ago, but I was like looking, 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 I couldn't find one. And then, um, so I, I, in school, I studied social justice and I kind of focused on like uh, incarceration justice, liberation studies, like conflict and social change stuff. I don't know. It's kind of like a almost basically um, I wanted to understand like human, basic human needs um, and what powers take that away from some people and give too much to other people. And I guess the social checks and balances that are super disproportionate um and because I wanted it to be like a lens to see if anything that I do like what how can I make it so everybody can do it or everybody has access to it um basically I think everybody deserves like the right to live a good life (laughs) I don't think it's I think everybody deserves to be happy and live um comfortably and I think there's many people who live too comfortably and then there's way more people who are very uncomfortable and very underserved and so I wanted to study that I guess and just have that lens so when I go forward I'm not somebody who underserves people or like like makes the disproportion worse um and I, I also kind of wanted to have my own understanding of uh, social activism and understanding, um, I guess, having my own understanding versus sometimes um, I feel like we can get scared into our opinions before, you know, before we fully understand them because we're scared of like the social backlash and I, I think that if, you know, somebody took the time to digest it and figure it out on their own and kind of piece it apart themselves, they might have, um, you know, be able to connect it to themselves in a way that's like, oh, this is why, you know, everybody deserves, <laughs> uh, you know, transportation or everybody deserves a job or, you know, whatever. Um, I think that it's important that we can take that step on our own because I always see a lot of times I see people um, maybe repost something because they don't want people to think that they weren't speaking on it, but really they're not concerned about the issue, if that makes sense. So it's not um, for me, it's not like a race to understand or to get things um Sorry, my cat is meowing back there. Sorry if you hear. Um, it's not a race to understand things. It's a it, it. We do need to figure things out and get people on the same page. But I don't want to do it so fast where we have to fix a bunch of stuff later. And I want us to digest stuff and say, how do we, you know, yes, incorporate these uh, marginalized voices, you know, have them talk about it or, or, you know, give solutions to it because they lived it. Um, 
a lot of times we can look at something and, you know, prescribe something before we fully know what the sickness is, I guess. Um, and so I think this time right now is um, a big time where people are like digesting stuff and really taking a look at it because, I mean, the, George Floyd wasn't the first time and it obviously wasn't the last time. And um, right now I feel like everybody like r- had like an uproar about it, which is great, but um, I don't want it to be, obviously people thought about that before, knew that police brutality was a thing beforehand and it just took people some time to get there. Um, a lot of people would look at that as like, what is taking you so long? But it's like, you know, people just aren't always right away exposed to the actual level of, you know, poverty or just the how tip the scales really are until they see it. And sometimes white people need to talk to white people to make it more understandable. So I feel like maybe, um, right now was a good time for me to study social justice and things like that, because no matter what I do, I feel like I can have the lens where I'm like, okay, let's make this uh, better for everybody, I guess. Uh, Cause America is not just rich white men or whatever, you know, this is obviously the place where there's <laughs> so many different identities and things. And it's not um, so easy to prescribe one thing for a big issue because a lot of people are affected by that issue um, or those issues. <laughs> so uh, that's why I studied social justice, you know, quick little blah, blah, blah. And so my internship that I wanted, I wanted to do something that was like healthcare related or um, the intersection of like health and um, Diversity, I know that word's kind of tired, but, you know, how do we start thinking about health in a way that includes people all the way around? Like, um, we're going to talk about birth a little bit, but um, talking about it in a way that's like, okay, well, birth, we know that Black women are, you know, disproportionately affected by it. What do we do about that? So it doesn't affect the outliers and these women, I guess. So um, I wanted to do something where I could learn about the connection between like general healthcare and like personalizing it to the very different needs of everybody here in the world, but especially, you know, America. Um, So one of my really good teacher friends was like, do you, want to take this internship with this organization I work with. They are, they help pregnant people who are in prison. And I was like, Ooh, I heard prison. That's what I want to do something in, you know, in prisons or incarceration complexes. I, we were actually, I was actually taking a class called inside out, which is like a national, uh, national organization thing that, um, different colleges around the world, I think, can take classes with um, people inside prisons. And so this class was in um, the Shakopee Women's Prison. 
and we both got credit. So I got or the half the class that was in at, uh, my college got credit, and then half the class that was incarcerated got credit. So it was um, great. I was like, that is great, fine. And I was like, kind of like the first time I think they d- did that, at least here. But um, they, it was just like, dang, I'm finally seeing some something even it's like the tiniest little glimmer of something where and like oh finally they're seeing people who are incarcerated as vital community members uh, i i've always had that thought of like why are there so many people in jail and like why is jail like such a common thing like there's so many people in jail who really should have just gone to like therapy or really it's a lot of untreated mental health stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, what can we do on the way on this journey that even prevents them from even having to put themselves in the position to get incarcerated? And it, it, and it's so it's survival crimes, I guess you can say it's everybody's a lot of that is survival. Like people who are using drugs, like, trying to keep themselves from like hurting themselves because of their life circumstances that they can't handle or stealing from the mall because their kids need clothes or you know, there's so many things that put them in that position because there's greater things that aren't working in their favor. And I think that I was like, I just want to be at the prisons because there's so many like, lovely people in there who are just not getting what they need. Just like plain, simple. I go, I'm not in prison. I go to therapy once a week, once every week and a half, something like that. And I'm like, there's other people who have, you know, acts They're They're not uh, broke by any means, but they're in prison now that they're in prison. They're like, Oh, all the services that I did have on the outside, I can't have here. Like, therapists aren't willing to like come to the facility or, you know, go out of their way to do those things or, um, you know, it's not so easy, I guess, for the um, correctional facilities to open up more mental health stuff. But I'm like, there has to be, it just, I'm like, come on, my tax dollars pay for this. I know you can (laughs) relocate it somewhere or do something better. It just, every time I'm like, what the heck is wrong with people that they want to, they want to put somebody's aunt or mom or dad or cousin in jail. I'm like, what the heck? There's people out there to really get us. And it's like, I can't believe that it's the same. Cause the police force was, you know, slave patrol way back in the way back. Okay, and then it just evolved, all right, to be the quote-unquote police. And, and it's like, you know, how do you, if you if you take a spoon and you cut little things in it and you call it a spork, it's still a spoon. It just has jagged edges on it and you can pick stuff up with it. It's like you, you can't just evolve something and call it something else. Like they are still based on those racist principles and they're, gonna put that into other things it's gonna be a power you know disposition or whatever where they're like i and i'm seeing it even for officers there's like an asian and a black cop in the or a mixed cop i think in the george floyd case and it's like 
I can see you guys were brainwashed by your white cop friends. Because really, if you were still, you know, back in the day with your homies, you might not have even done something like that. Or you would have thought, told your counterpart, don't do that. You know, but then once you're in like a system where you're like, oh, I get paid to do this. I'm just going to roll with it. I have like liability insurance. It's going to be okay. It's completely takes any blame off them and switches like the blame into like a power thing. And I'm like, how do we stop that? Like in the little parts, (laughs) you know, I, I love, and I'm so thankful for everybody who's like protesting on the front lines and doing everything in community like that. Um, I feel like I work best in my, in, in like socially, like in working in like facilities and things like that one-on-one. And I don't think that, that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, there's people who only want to do the frontline stuff and they are really good at being loud and proud. And that is great because that's needed. But then there's other people who are a little, not so loud, but they speak with people one-on-one more. And that's another way of activism. So um, I think it, long story short, I, I stumbled into doula care because I thought it, it was a way of um, advocating for people. Um, and it w- for me, it was also like, oh, you know, one thing that we all can't deny is that we grew in a womb. <laughs> we were born C-section or vaginally or however, you know, we were born. We all connect over the fact that we needed a placenta and an umbilical cord at some point. Like we share things. We just aren't thinking about it just because we don't remember it or we don't know what we don't, we can't see it because socially, I mean, how do you, when you pay attention to the things that you need to survive, you don't always pay attention to the greater things because it's not impacting you necessarily at that moment. But I think if you can put little things in your day to day life that's like oh I, I i can like reach out in this way and and help this community this way or this just this person then it's like that's one step towards something better and i always want to encourage people to do better <laughs> like you know you do better for yourself and you do better for the people around you and then it's back to the cycle of like uh, i i want to contribute to you and remind you how awesome you are. So then when you go out there and you raise your, your awesome kid and then your kid feels awesome. And then you and your kid go do awesome things that will probably come back and meet me somehow. So I, I always think of different ways that we can um, do stuff for ourselves and for each other. And I think doula work was like my way of doing it without realizing that I was ever going to be a doula (laughs) Um, because I I definitely was studying social justice incarceration justice stuff taking a class in the prison before I even heard the word doula and then a year later I was a doula so I was like okay (laughs) very interesting because it was a point where I was like I cannot imagine what else I'm going to do with my life right now I'm a senior in college I can't even get a freaking internship and then a week later, I got like an internship and I was like, oh, a doula. That's like way more than just like a birth resource person. 
and, and like for the first year I was like how do you even explain what like a doula is because it's so much and my first I not my my very first doula client was like a friend she's like my niece my little niece baby and it was wasn't so um intense but after that it was more intense in in correctional facilities um and I really feel lucky to have done that work or to be doing it because it's just again it's just a vastly underserved place it's not like these people weren't most of them weren't taxpaying individuals or, you know, weren't uh, community members somehow. Yes, they, you know, faltered off the path somehow, but it's not like that one negative should erase all the positive contributions that they did do. So um, I think being a doula for me right now is a good way to incorporate like advocacy and activism and also, um, I guess, putting more patience in ourselves as um, learners. Because <laughs> every day we're learning no matter what. I don't care if you have 50 PhDs. I don't care if you're Bill Gates. I don't care who you are. You're always learning. And even people who think they know it all um, always get humbled at some point. So I think um, we are always collectively on a learning journey that we shouldn't leave anybody off of. Mm-hmm. Well, when you were <clears throat> talking about the police brutality, mm-hmm. I mean, I was like, we're jumping from, you have this beautiful marriage in your life's mission of of seeing people who have been a product of that system, but then are also a product of this birthing system that we have in this healthcare system that we have. So we were wondering, you know, we've been focusing nationally on the police brutality side lately, but what Sarah and I are more are curious about too is the healthcare side. You know, what are you seeing personally, not only in the prisons, but out of the prisons? You know, you, you spoke so eloquently about how, that pipeline to the prison. Like, what are you seeing in the communities and what are you seeing in the prisons that's also a product of racism and, and that oppression and that just like, you said like you were one thing before you went in and then you lost all your resources. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, uh, so here in Minnesota, we don't have any, um, prison hospitals. So they deliver in community at, the, you know, the hospital that's closest. Um, and so what's different for, um, I've noticed for people who are either incarcerated or just not um, white or, you know, you know, um, I guess more easier, comfortable for white providers to take care of. Um, I notice a little bit more hesitation in um, asking versus telling. Um, even I've noticed, even if somebody has, um, drug history on their medical chart, 
I, I see like this switch of like, oh, it's like, it's either you're a suburban mom with a husband and maybe, you know, a doula from a, you know, white agency. But the second there's a difference, I can see like this switch where it's like, let me dumb this down or let me make this um, easy for you by just telling you the big things. And which is, I, I, I see a lot of fear that comes out of that. I see a lot of, so I see um, doctors dumbing things down, but really leaving important things out and um, doing things less carefully because they are not either in community with every, all their other clients or have a different background. Um, personally, I see, I've seen like, um, due dates be a little off by like two weeks <laughs> and doctors are inducing a mom and, you know, like side attack, side attack six times and all that, you know, push and push and push. And finally he, you know, baby comes and it's like, I connect with her later on when she finds me or something like that. She's like they were off the one I, the doctor I've seen for all my other babies was told me, you know, she looked at my stuff because I wanted her to check in with me afterwards. And she was like, their, their numbers were off. And well, you know, I was like, Oh dear. (laughs) And they, and you know, I don't want to say they were rough with the baby by any means, but they, it was just um, less of a, the, they, they trust them with the baby, but they're like, oh, the baby's cold. Let me keep it over here and like kind of test it. Always assuming maybe that they're, the baby might be experiencing withdrawals or something, even if the mom's been incarcerated for, you know, six months and doesn't have access, hopefully. But um, so it's, I've seen, it, it's the little things where it's like um, with the eye ointment, um, what's you know the word? Uh, yes, erythromycin. I see um, doctor the nurse being like, okay, well, um, there's the vitamin K shot, and then there's the erythromycin. It does you know this, that, and the other thing, and then the mom will be like, you know what? I, maybe I'll do the vitamin K, but I'll skip the eye ointment, and then the doctor will be like, or the nurse or whoever will be like, well, your baby could go blind if you don't. And it's like, well, why didn't you just trust her when she said she didn't want it? And if that was so important, why didn't you say it the first time? And it's just like, I guess, a lack of wanting to have that conversation, maybe of just fear or um, they were worried it's going to be uncomfortable or something. But I just noticed that um, I and maybe interject a lot towards the mom saying, well, this is what that means. Um, kind of uh, doctors being like, we're going to put, you know, for um, preeclampsia, if they are preeclamptic and they put like the seizure pads on the hot, the um, sides of the bed, they're like, oh, we're going to put these seizure pads on, but don't worry, you probably won't have a seizure. And she's like, what do you mean? And it's like, <laughs> they're, and I don't know maybe if it's all birthing people or maybe if it's just me thinking like, having that uh, that thought that they're they had something menacing behind it I guess but um 
um, it just makes me think like it's it, and it's mostly male doctors that have that quick response and they're like, oh, don't worry, it's nothing. And it's in the hospitals and it's like I see them being comfortable offering the intervention because they know what's going to go well. And if it doesn't, then they have 10 specialists to fix it. But they're not the one going to go through it. So they don't really they're not worried about it because they have 10 other patients. And so it's like I see with my mom's incarcerated, I notice um, maybe the nurses maybe are a bit shyer sometimes or more shy. (laughs) Um, Or uh, of course they don't have patients who are incarcerated all the time. So there's some stuff that they don't know that I'm like, Oh, um, like for footprints, um, they put like a powder over the footprints after they ink the baby. Um, but they can't have that footprints inside if there's powder on them because they don't know what the powder is. So I have to be like, wait, 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 do another set without powder or, you know, whatever, like little things, because they really, they get five pictures from their birth and their separation visit we have, which is, um, you know, after they, you know, after vaginal birth, after C-section, when you normally go home with your baby, they go back to the facility if they have more time to serve and then their baby goes elsewhere. And I've totally, oh, it hurts my heart to think about it. But I've had moms um, be told freaking 10 minutes ago, whatever, we'll say it's 9.50 a.m. And they're like, okay, well, you're going to, we're going to let you stay here until noon tomorrow. Um, and then she gets, she gets her hopes up and she's like, ooh, I have another day with my baby. But then they call back 10 minutes later and they're like, actually, we're, uh, we're, we're going to have you leave today at one. Well, for any other mom who's not incarcerated, that's great. I'm sick of the hospital. I want to go home. But for, for moms who they only get this little 36 hours or less uh, or more, give or take, you know, if you had a C-section or not for those moms, it's like, you know, I was being in the hospital right now was like the time I get with my baby until I figure stuff out or until I get home or whatever. And so it's definitely, they, don't realize it like they don't have the they don't have the patients like the actual pay like they don't have the admitted people maybe or the experience to be like oh maybe this parent has like a difficult background with their child and this is the only time they're gonna get for a while or the only intimate time they're gonna get because of you know whatever restrictions they might have to get or you know supervision changes but um I just noticed the little things like the the things that normal I don't want to use the word normal but moms and community would maybe be more happy for or comfortable with um incarcerated moms are like hmm that's not so good for me because of course it's not you have a day and a half (laughs) with your, your baby versus, you know, other moms are going home and have her, have them forever. And it's definitely, it's definitely, um, a situation where like the baby's crying too. <laughs> like definitely the baby's not, doesn't want to be away from the mom, but that's just how it has to go. Um, cause the baby, there's no ner- prison nursery or anything, but, um, so basically, um, I just noticed little things where, 
they aren't maybe thinking that the next hour or next day and a half or 24 hours or whatever is the only time they're going to have for like a few months. Um, and it's, and then it's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Let me leave the room. And then, you know, I deal with it, but, um, it's, it's also, I notice. um, so for when they are giving birth in custody and they, uh, are going back to the facility, they have to have guards with them in the room, um, while they're in labor or delivering. And if it's a guy, he leaves the room, but if it's two women, they stay. Um, and I think that, uh, nobody's going to run away with a head coming out of their vagina first off. <laughs> no, nobody's going to run off when they're, you know, delivering a baby, but also, um, it's very invasive. So now it's like a, uh, physical barrier it's like me leaving going to the hospital to have my baby like you know you'd think that'd be the one place or you know even when animals have babies they go somewhere private and it's the opposite of private <laughs> when you have you know two guards and a nurse and a doctor and a doula in there and nobody in there is your family member who you would want in there and so I never take offense of course if they're like I wish my mom or somebody else was here. Cause uh, if I was given birth, I would want my you know, mom or whoever else to be there. So I absolutely get it. Um, but you know, the nurses, the nursing staff and they don't get it. But um, I notice it maybe more for um, people who present more urban or whatever, you know, if they're like, very compliant and nice and everything like that versus if they have questions or concerns as you should for, you know, people who are just suggesting care for you. Um, then I think they're a little bit more like, well, why are you asking me (laughs) that we're supposed to do it? Or, you know, this is going to be easiest for us because you're not the only person who has a C-section today or whatever, you know, it's completely different for them. And um, I de- like they don't necessarily like communicate with the facility very well. I've had moms go like didn't know none of us knew that she was going to have a C section the next day, um, and so she ate breakfast <laughs> and ate dinner and was not you know thought she was just going for another checkup, but it was um, a C section and all these these cases are not, of course, I'm not saying names or anything like that. And I might've changed some stuff, but it's definitely, it happens. And it's, even if I'm saying one story, it's not like she is the only person it's happened to because there's so many people who are pregnant and, and incarcerated and give birth without a doula or anybody there to end with their best interest. And so if I, if I am saying a story, I, I know it's, a, she's not the only one because. Sure. This is your collective experience. Yeah. yeah. It's like these things, you know, they're, it's not like even a, sometimes I feel like it's like the medical staff isn't even looking for 
like difference. It's just like, you know, it's an autopilot thing where it's like, I noticed something different about you. Like you, I, I think, and I register it as like a lesser quality. I think you're being a hypochondriac. And I, I had noticed that for even myself when I was younger and I'm like, didn't know, I, I'm like, what's wrong with me? And it, it's like, cause I thought, I don't know. It's like my mom brought me to the ER once because I was like, thought I was going to faint or something. And then I found out later it was like anxiety <laughs> and that was just like messing with me in like high school or something. And my male white male doctor was like, well, here's a book to read um, and stuff like that. And which, uh, you know, that would work, but it was like, you know, if that was my thing, but it was like very, not helpful (laughs) it's like there's things they do that aren't helpful but um they can say they did their job so it works for them and i notice a lot of that um anyway but especially when there's any layer of difference any educational like uh ebonics anything where it's like i notice you might have a quality that i would assume that i would consider lesser i I'm going to change my whole way of being. And I'm just like, that's so weird that it's not because I definitely see other moms who aren't, or even hear other parents, you know, crossing, passing their rooms. I'm like, that nurse is already having a better, more intimate experience with this, you know, potentially white mom with, a husband and you know her sister in there for support and things like that um and i don't know if it's maybe maybe i'm a defensive sometimes as a doula for for moms who are incarcerated but it's i can just see it in them that they are scared to ask things or scared to do things because they don't want to get in trouble and it's like you shouldn't be scared to like comfortably give birth or um they're like, oh, well, I want to do this and this. I want to know these answers, but I don't want to like bug medical. And I'm like, well, you know, quality medical care shouldn't stop when you get a felony. You, freaking Martha Stewart has a felony. You think she doesn't have the top notch doctors in the world helping her and, you know, keeping her afloat to be able to go smoke lunch with Snoop Dogg? Uh, yeah, she has amazing staff i'm sure and she has a damn felony and it's like if you have enough money you can make life what you want it to be but if you don't have money you're a pawn for the people who have the game of life and it's like i see i see the provider patient relationship as like I, uh, everything is that circle of life again. That's it's back to that for me. But it's like, as a doctor, you, you know, one patient is the same. So you learn variations of a condition better than somebody who is ex- one person who's experiencing the condition. So I would think that doctors would be more open or um, mindful maybe of differences or, um, you know, disparities for black women giving birth. Like I would think, huh, I feel different about this black lady walking in for no reason. I wonder what my bias is. Like, that's never the question of what's my bias. 
in this? Why do I feel threatened or different? Or why do I feel a need to approach her differently because she's not white? Now, okay. Now that that sounds like a personal problem to me because it's like, okay, what changed her coming in from, you know, Nancy coming in before where, you know, they both have, they're both paying you through their insurance and, you know, the skin color is different and maybe her vernacular is different. Okay. But they're, you're getting paid the same. So it's like, if so much, so much stuff is like consumer based, like doctors want to make it easy for people to digest. But sometimes I think they take their, uh, let me give you this medical advice simply can be a little like dumbing it down in a way where it's like, it's not really, it's not helping, you know, the mom to be like, Oh, we're going to give you this pill and it just kind of helps get stuff going. Well, Cytotec is also an abortion pill (laughs) or, you know, like maybe she didn't want that. And, you know, it's just things where it's not like you're keep, you're keeping something from somebody that maybe you think is gonna be easier to keep that information away, but it would maybe make it worse to keep that information from them and sometimes vice versa. And I know it's a lot of things are like, Oh, it's, you know, it's like this weird line you have to walk, but I think medical standards could all get, uh, you know, some color (laughs) i think that any any really good medical school that wants to be the best or wants to produce really good doctors i think they should have every different they should experience every different variation of human because you know no two people are the same I'm sure that there's guidelines that are like, oh, you know, blood pressure, like general blood pressure is 120 over 80 K. But, you know, if I go in and my blood pressure is like 96 over something, whatever, one day, that's, well, that's still okay. That's normal for me, but that's not normal for somebody else. So it's just, I think they dismiss maybe the, the personal normals that, um, and, and it, 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 hurts in more ways than one meaning um information can be under shared scaring people and it can be overshared scaring people and it's um i think it's important to just have a clear understanding for me at least of um what provider means and what like what their intention is versus what came out um i think you can be really altruistic person but you know your result might be really shitty in the end messy in the end sorry um you know you can be like oh i want to donate all my money to one thing but then it'd be like well you know uh they actually don't, PETA doesn't need all that money. Okay. Or, you know, whatever that I think that if people are making informed 
decisions, I think people should also be better at giving those informed like options, if that makes sense. Um, a lot of stuff is people think it's the best when it's in like, you know, the, from the highest, you know, the most popular publisher, like, you know, the best, like don't use Wikipedia for your research papers or whatever, you know, but it's like, well, actually Wikipedia is updated by a lot of awesome people who have like really put time into researching it or lived it or, you know, know more about it than the average person. And it's actively updated, you know, more frequently than the, you know, CIA fact book. I don't know, but there's just like, I think there's value in taking the time to have one-on-one conversations about health because health is not a conversation that is, it's not like a one-way thing where you can be like, oh, everybody, if everybody does this and this, then, you know, you're going to just be super happy and healthy. It's like, you know, different people have different needs. And I think that what, seems to be the most popular isn't always the best because people don't always need the best. They need what is good for them. And so I think that doctors get mixed up with like the best or the leading or um, seeming um, comfortable in their decisions and that they gave you the best information that they could but you know you can go home and look something up and be like i didn't know that there was these 10 other reasons maybe why i shouldn't be taking that medicine or whatever and they they do say you know that your doc if your doctor prescribed this they think the the reward outweighs the risk but it's not like your doctor thought that you didn't think that you didn't necessarily get time to you're in labor, you didn't get time to think through more, you know, if you wanted side attack or if you wanted to do, you know, sleep or whatever, it's like they kind of throw information at you. Like, this is the best thing I can offer you right now. If you don't decide it in the next five minutes, then we're going to give you a C-section. It's like, don't give me these really hard ultimatums while I'm giving birth right now, <laughs> while my body is going through this crazy shift. And I think that, um, I, I notice those little inconsistencies when even when one layer of difference is there. And I think that it's very important to like get them right away, like nip them right away or whatever, because that's how microaggressions become a thing. And I feel like medicine is a bunch of microaggressions <laughs> under a layer of like, uh, well, we're America and we have, we're, we're like the nation of Chrome and we are super leading. And it's like, well, actually we have pretty crappy birth outcomes for black moms, which make up a great amount of your work for, you know, your, your foot workforce, if you will, you know, people are doing on foot stuff where it's like, you get to sit in your office, but you wanted somebody to make you a latte or you wanted somebody to, you know, bring you, you, you're at home doing things, but you want somebody to deliver things for you. Maybe these moms or families who did lose their job during the pandemic are doing these things so they can support 
their families and you don't even care <laughs> because you you're comfortable. So I think it's I don't want to put like an anxiety on doctors because I'm sure, you know, there's anxiety there, but um I I do want it to be like um m- less rigid, less of like uh uh yeah, just less rigid in a way that's like, you know, you don't always have to give the worst news first and expect it to be okay, I guess. Like, you know, people linger on the bad stuff, especially while they're incarcerated and they're like, oh, I, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, oh, you know, I really wish your doctor would have answered that for you. Or I really wish that you, I was with you for your appointment so you could uh, have thought to ask those questions because they're giving you so much information that you still need to digest. Um, so it's very, um, it's very different to see when doctors are like, um, are you okay racially (laughs) you know what i mean like when they incorporate that like it's rare to see it i'm just now seeing it like in 2020 this past month but it's like i'm glad that they think to ask those questions because it's not i guess it's for me it's like it's not hard to like you know ask a, a question that gives you a better perspective on somebody And so you can give them more personalized care that also makes them confident enough to be able to carry out their care for themselves at home or, you know, be able to make them confident that they can get through it or whatever. Um, I think that there's that lack of confidence being passed from the doctor to the patient where it's like you, you do have some say so in your health. I think that um, any layer of difference that, that kind of like confidence diminishes for from the doctor to the patient. And it's like, they're like, Oh, I don't, you know, they might, they might not even be thinking of these things. So I won't even overload them. Well, you know, maybe that, that little bit of information would have helped them with their health. And, you know, in a couple months, if they're just, if they can, you know, only do something, one thing at a time because, you know, financially or, you know, family wise. And it's like, I think doctors pick and choose the things to leave out, but the things that they leave out, I think um, would better inform families and make them more confident in themselves. And then back into the medical field that they're relying on. Hmm. Do you see any difference? Are you able to have any experience with like black physicians working with black families or female physicians working with females? Do you see any difference there? Yeah, I do. I have. So my aunt is black and she had um, an experience with her first baby and they were not listening to her and she was coming into the hospital and, um, the emergency room, like bleeding for two weeks up until um, she had my nephew at like 28 weeks. So it was like, and he was like a pound. So it was like, 
and that was in 2000. And so it, it was a, a scenario where she was going repeatedly saying something's not right. And obviously if you're bleeding at all during your pregnancy, something's not right, but they just kept overlooking it. And then she was like giving birth and they're like, Oh, you were right when you came in the other seven times, you know? And, and so, um, you know, 20 years later, (laughs) I am starting to see a benefit to having uh, female physicians in general, just anyway for anybody, but then also um, for women because they, I think are, I, I think that women have better mirror neurons. I think, I think that, you know, women are people with uteruses are people who can reproduce and who choose to reproduce. Um, I think have, uh, our pituitary gland is just, you know, superior. I just feel like we have the, we have the capacity to care for more than one person or to, to, uh, consider more like the family's feelings. And I don't think that's like a negative thing. I just think that's like a benefit childbearing people have (laughs) because they do go through the mental and physical change of getting pregnant and having a child. But, um, I noticed that the compassion and stuff and emotions and all whatever word you use to describe, um, what being a, like a caring woman, parent, you know, person with motherly, you know, attributes. <laughs> um, I think that it's a benefit to have that extra level of care because it's like this integration that I see of like, of professionalism and care that goes really well and helps everybody in the end because the mom is like okay well I feel confident in what my physician told me and so I can spend more time you know planning my my life with my kid because I'm not freaked out about my ultrasound or whatever because they clarified it for me now not saying that male doctors don't I or they don't care or, or anything, but I just notice the, the, the interjections, the things that female doctors think to say, or the, just like the motherly, like instinct of being kind of like, Oh, you know, you can do this. I, I see it all the time. Like, you know, but if you don't feel like you can do it, we have things to make it better versus what male doctors are kind of like, um, well, the anesthesiologist is just like a floor up. If you want them to come, I can call them out. It's like, well, don't just throw epidural at me because you know, there's, I've, you know, there's, there is that fear of afterwards being like, oh, not even fear, but just this, the disappointment of being like, I wish that I did it natural or whatever. And I think that, male doctors the experience of male doctors makes the reminiscing on your birth experience um a little bit more harsh if that makes sense 
yeah, it's not so, um, they, they're, they're more straightforward and kind of just give information versus where, you know, female doctors or doctors with vaginas, um, they seem to just integrate this level of care that's like really awesome. And I already noticed this like self-esteem raise in, in the mom because I'm like, okay, this, this doctor just, you know, made you feel better about yourself. Didn't, didn't give you options in a way that made you feel like, well, either I'm going to be in pain or I'm going to have a baby. Well, it's like, well, we, we, female doctors are like, women doctors are like, well, you're going to be in pain no matter what. I'll give you an epidural, but your pain's going to come back. Or, you know, they're, they're, they're realistic. And like, I can give you something to help you with this pain, but this pain is going to bring your baby and you... It might suck now, but once your baby's out, it's going to be like super awesome. And, you know, just talk, talking. And if they say, no, I want one. Oh, cool. Let's get you an epidural. Cool. We can do that. There's no problem. But, but versus got, you know, male doctors are like, so you are uh, two centimeters. We can do an epidural and you can take a nap. Um, (laughs) Um, I'll give you some fentanyl (laughs) like three times over and you're not going to notice anything, but it'll pass some time. And I'll say, I did something to help you out. And it's like, okay, well, (laughs) every time they offer the fentanyl, I'm like, wow. um, Okay. So, I mean, obviously Meg and I both identify as female and um, Mm -hmm. however we are, we're white and I'm curious as to what, how you feel that, what would, what would make you more comfortable as a black person seeing a care provider who is white? What, what are things that we could do say um, that would, that would offer some solidarity? You know, um, what I've really appreciated lately is the acknowledgement of the like um, emotional, physical labor that goes into being black. Um, even if you are a fourth black, a half black, so you know, 75% full black, super black, like it's, it's um, just this level of, like you, you even asking me like, is it okay if I ask you this question or like, you know, uh, I know it's like a lot, it's a, you know, it's emotional time off of your hands and I don't want to take that from you versus, you know, the, my 23 years on this earth, people are white people are like, um, why can't I say the N word? You say it. Or, you know, Chris Brown said it. And I'm like, you're not me, nor are you Chris Brown, nor are you black. And it's like, do I really have to explain this to you and 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 i know that they there's times where people come and i'm like you just want to have uh like an argumentative conversation to make you feel correct and um and i've noticed that for me it's been like wow i can't it's not it's never going to be am i right and you're wrong it's going to be Um, there's this collective struggle that we all have. And I noticed that 
I play a part in it and me as a white provider, you know, noting that and, and saying, you know, let me know if I'm taking that, taking emotional time from you or putting emotional an unemotional toll on you, I guess. Um, I think a lot of white people come to black people or even mixed people as a mixed person. I, my mom's white as a mixed person. Oh my God, do white people feel comfortable coming to me and asking me horrible questions? Like it's, it, it it's, it's really discouraging and very taxing. And it's like, why do you feel so comfortable saying that to me asking me that and and it's like wow you don't realize like how much that just took for me for you to ask me such a stupid question for you to go laugh in the hallway with like your other white friends or whatever and it's like no I didn't tell you I'm not an urban dictionary you know, where you can come ask me questions, cool slang terms or something like that, and then go use them incorrectly and properly. You know, don't come ask me pieces of black lingo, information, whatever. I'm not giving you something cool to say. I'm not giving you an, an explanation on the word so you can use it and say, no, well, my black friend told me it. No, no, no. Y- you, like, you know asking questions, not, you know, white people asking those questions, it's very taxing. And so I think being uh, aware of that and, and being like, what, you know, let me know if this is like starting to go down a a path where I'm having an emotional toll on you, I guess. I think that is like a great place to start. Um, I don't, I think it's going to be a lot of work on both ends. Um, there's definitely no matter what we have to have like solidarity between each other if we're black or we're white or if we're Latinx or, you know, whatever we come from, because that is America. And if we're going to stay in America, we have to know that we're every, we're like, you know, everything is here. Okay. We're going to, people come here for a better, they think, cause they think it's going to be better in some way. And I think that, um, we should start working together to make it seem like we can be better collectively. And I think just you, you asking the questions of, you know, what is it that I can maybe not do to make this easier for us to have like this conversation or what layer of understanding do you want me to get before we dive in? Because I think that once there's like an, like a even understanding, then going in and having the conversation is easier. Um, Just like, you know, um, what's it? July, June in like March, maybe no, maybe January and maybe even a little longer, but definitely within the last year. um, uh, One of my white friends was telling another white person, you know, uh, about reverse racism and how that's not really a thing. And he was like, I am so 
shocked that you think that um, black people can be racist and it's okay that black people are racist. And it's like, okay, you didn't hear me. Uh, I think black people can be, you know, I think if you are being derogatory, obviously not towards white people, because can you, if it's a giant and you're hitting a giant with a stick, the giant's going to laugh. You don't, you're not, you're not making an impact on, you know, white culture or the white identity by talking back on it or saying something negative because uh, everything here that is negative is impacted by it. It's not like, you know, Jack and the beanstalk. If you rip a flower, a leaf off Jack's beanstalk, like the stock's not going to fall over. Oh my God. It's going to be okay. But this ladder of like all, you know, black people, native people, you know, every person of color that white people have used to build like this ladder to the top. I think um, we have to like take the ladder apart and be like, okay, um, this step is really crucial for us to understand before we can even use it to go further because that is when people are like, wait, racism, I totally get racism. Black people can't be racist to white people. And it's like, you're, you totally skip 10 steps in understanding that. He, you know, it's like, he, he was half um, Asian, like of Asian descent, some, like I think half Filipino or something. And it, so he was more, he was definitely white passing and um, leaned on his white identi- identity really um, primarily. And he just would not understand. And I said, listen, um, I said, I'm, I'm like, you know, we're both half white, but it's different for me. And he was like, oh, and now I don't have anything to say. Like, whoa. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, it's it's different to be um, black versus other um, backgrounds because I think people are so used to seeing black people and used to seeing like the stereotypes and things that people think that uh, it's easy to talk about to black people. And it's like, well, it's not easy being like a thought of as a stereotype and then being asked about a stereotype. It's kind of like, well, it's like going up to somebody and being like, so, you know, I heard you're ugly. What's being ugly? Like, it's like, Oh, it's uh, hurts my feelings sometimes that people think, or, you know, whatever, if that was like, you know, something people can relate to, but you know, people do think of blackness as ugly sometimes and they don't realize the connotations that they have with things. Um, and so I think, yeah, just taking that ladder apart and being like, Oh, I kind of skipped a bunch of under, you know, steps in understanding uh, reverse racism or, you know, um, why, people can't say certain words, you know, there's certain words black people shouldn't use. There's where, you know, words that everybody that, you know, that, and they have, people have their own understanding of like reclamation of words and things like that. But um, yeah, I think it's just important to have conversations on those steps of the collective ladder, I guess, if that's whatever thing I just made up, but um, it's, it's very, I just noticed that people get up on this 
this thing or like, I have black friends and I have, you know, I have black objects, therefore I'm not racist. It's like, well, uh, you know, in the 18, you know, in the 1900s, they, people had like freaking Aunt Jemima jars and stuff. And it's like, that was, uh, that's still holding a piece of blackness. And you think that you know so well that you can use in any way. It's like, no, it's like really actually offensive and not even a productive way of using blackness by any means. And so I think, yeah, just asking those questions and being mindful um, and always wanting to learn, I think that is great and is really helpful. Even my, my therapist, she was like, you know, it, uh, racial oppression is like, you know traumatic and i'm like oh i you know what i didn't freaking realize it until 2020 but it's because i'm so used to it in a way that's like um you know oh it's just another like stupid question i have to answer well (laughs) i've had to ask answer a lot of stupid questions in my day and it's not always like they don't always realize that this is not a good question <laughs> or something they should maybe. And, and, and sometimes I'm like, Oh, you have to ask me because who do you know? That's white. Who's going to have the right answer. Who do you know that has that experience? That's going to say, Oh, well, this is what that means. Or this is actually, you know, why it's hurtful. So it's like um, this interesting line that we're, that I'm feel like I notice of, feeling exhausted with answering questions, but also like who, who else do you go to ask those questions? I know there's Google and, you know, a lot of people say, you know, there's Google that like white people can use Google. But, um, I also want the like conversation to be had, like ask me the hard questions that you're maybe scared to ask people because that's how you learn being on the edge of your comfort zone or whatever. Um, and I don't, I don't want white people to be scared of asking those questions and being offensive because I think you might have to be offensive for a second to learn. What were we, what was the last thing we were talking about? Oh yeah. It's being on the edge of your comfort zone. And I think a lot of people, a lot of white people are scared to be uncomfortable and a lot of black people are on defense because we're always uncomfortable And I think it's uncomfortable to talk about that, but we have to talk about it to be, to get through the discomfort and get to a solution because, um, I, I don't, I've noticed white people are scared to ask questions because they're like, I'm going to be wrong or I'm not going to ask it the right way. And definitely black people can be defensive about it because people ask us questions like that a lot and don't have the intent of, of being respectful but 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 the difference is you have this intent and this desire to and this actual care you're not asking it just because you heard it in a song or just because you heard you know saw it somewhere you have like a genuine desire and like human rights (laughs) and I think that it's um where I'll speak for myself as a black person I'm very used to being defensive about the things that white people are asking me because it is kind of like Oh, you're lucky to not 
see what was wrong with that question. And so it is almost a lot of being like, checking myself again from being like, do you realize what you're saying? And do you, do you realize what you're saying versus do you, are you just talking out of your ass? You know, and you, you guys realize what you're saying and you have this genuine desire to ask and be mindful. And I think that's like what's missing in a lot of conversations is like the difference between how do I look like a good white person versus how do I actually be a good white person? I hope that we're learning to bounce our dumb questions off of each other as white people. I'm like, save, save like our genuine thoughtful questions for our black friends and our friends who are people of color. And yeah, maybe use Google as a resource when we're concerned about like, am I allowed to say this particular phrase? You know, maybe that's, maybe that's not a a good use of your emotional energy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, we are learning and we're going to make a ton of mistakes. We're going to make a shit ton of mistakes, but um, I'm thankful that this movement is causing the scales to fall off of our eyes a little bit. And I'm really thankful that you have used your energy here with us today to talk to us about all of this. And I'm just blown away about your experiences with incarcerated people. This isn't even something that I thought we were going to talk about and ended up being the main point of our conversation. I learned just very, very much from you. And I'm so thankful to you for that. Um, Yeah. Kiki, you are a gift and um, you're a gift to the birth community. You're a gift to um, the world in general. Thank you for talking to us today. I appreciate hearing that. I hope that I was clear and didn't get off on too many tangents. Yeah, there's too many to address. We could sit and talk about this for days and days. And yeah, you just gave like a brief, I mean, my gosh, you covered so much. That was so knowledgeable and like so informative. And I think, I mean... Yes, I hope that that's why we wanted to put this here and use our time that we hold or like our place that we hold on the internet or in podcast land, you know, so that hopefully people who are using our our resource as a tool for their lives already can hear from you and, and not hear, you know, our mouths run on a topic yeah, that is know. not... It's usually our tangent. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And so we're we're thankful for an, a different one. A different yes. I appreciate yeah. it. Yes, we're, so we're because so I noticed that yeah. I'm like how you say you're re- relearning some stuff. I'm relearning things too where I'm like oh, yeah, I I guess it, it yeah, you know, that that I'm learning that it's traumatic for us to have these questions or that it's a, a lot of emotional stuff for us to handle because it's so frequent and almost like um, also reminding us that we are, um, we don't, we're not on autopilot anymore. Like we can bring our feelings back out and we like remind us that it is like hard because we always put that on the back burner so we can explain 
you know, why it's hard, but then we just are like, dang, it was hard to have that conversation. So it, it, it gets shoved down a lot where we, it's like our, our, we can be defensive, but it's like, because we've been dealing with it and we didn't even realize that it's been a problem or we realized that it's been a problem, but it's like something that's so ingrained into us just doing that. It's like, um, yeah, we, we need to remind ourselves that or need reminders that we're human and we deserve like the space and emotional time to like process stuff. <laughs> Cause I think we forget that definitely. And I think that's helpful from you guys too. Well, you are, you are carrying a excessive cognitive load that we don't have to carry and, um, or we have not. And I, I, I hope that as white folks that we can, maintain some like there, that there's some sustainability to this movement um and that we aren't gonna we aren't gonna lose our stamina in this because we're accustomed to thinking about hard things like this for a very long time Mm -hmm. um but the things that you've taught us here today and talked to us about are extremely valuable and are the wind beneath our our very fragile wings and um i appreciate you kiki I appreciate you asking me. I feel really happy to talk to you too about it. <laughs> you know, you know, have conversations with people that maybe aren't so open or who have a genuine like care, and it's like inspire, like makes me happy. Like they, you know, there is an end to like the racism and stuff <laughs> that we. And then it's almost so hard for us to put into words that we're like, am I being mean by saying racism? But it's like, that's what it is. That's what it is. Like, you know, black people checking themselves at the same time. White people are checking themselves, but almost in different ways. Uh, Very much in different ways. (laughs) Well, before we go, is there anything that you would like us to put in our show notes is there any question we didn't answer that you wanted to have space to talk about because we, we want you to ha- hold this space like, or any resources or places you would like donations that, you know, we, things that we can put in our, in our show notes for our listeners. Sure. Well, so did I answer your questions about like, I think you said at the beginning, you asked about sustainability in the end. We were going to get to that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I answered that. It was kind of going off for a while. Um, But for a quick answer on that, I'd say just keep reminding each other or when you feel like even yourself might be losing steam, um, or talk to other people about it That so you can hold each other accountable to get it back into action, I guess. (laughs) Community... Um, but I guess I do have some, um, community resources here in Minnesota. Um, and I can send you guys those links too, but, um, there's so much going down downtown. Um, Oh my God. (laughs) And it's my childhood home. Like the place where he got shot in front of, I got my first cell phone at like, I'm like, Oh Oh my God, it's like my, it's my, you know, it's so it's pretty, and it's amazing to go down there and see all the stuff that they're doing. But um, there's like a lot of places that down there that are feeding the community because the riots completely wiped out like all the food places people would go to like on foot, you know, families would go to get, you know, 
it burnt up Popeyes and everything, you know, so it's really burnt up down there. But um, there's, uh, I'll send some like fundraisers that have, um, it's like sustaining South Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, different um, neighborhood foundations that are like re- restocking the community i guess um and then something i'm a part of here is called the chocolate milk club and it's uh black breastfeeding awareness support um conversations things like that pre-covid we had um we call it chocolate milk mixers and it'd just be black breastfeeding parents um coming together and just talking about it um it's very specifically for black breastfeeding families because um, it focuses on breastfeeding. But of course there's, we can help with like formula and things like that. We connected to WIC and things like that. But um, it, it is through a black midwife here who works um, for North Memorial hospital. And she, so she kind of does it on the side, but she does really awesome work and she is freaking awesome i'm like she's just awesome awesome she has um this like desire to keep black women breastfeeding or to get them to breastfeed at all um it's really it's really a passion for black families um black family sustainability at, at one point or, you know, you know, how, how breastfeeding can change the family financially, you know, the benefits of breastfeeding, things like that. Um, so I'll definitely send that one over too. We have a birth center here called Roots and it's like one of the like seven or something black birth centers in, in America, but it, I'm pretty sure they got affected by the riots because they are North Minneapolis or Minneapolis. Um, they do really cool, like the, like black centered stuff. And I really like to have a birth center, black birth center <laughs> close um, because I think it's important to know let, that black women can know that they can have a delightful birth experience. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be uh, really traumatic in the hospital injections, you know, it doesn't have to be hard and um, you don't have to formula feed. I think that historically people are like, you freaking during slavery, the, you know, uh, slaves wet nursing for the mistresses. You know, it's like, leave the breast milk for the white babies. And that's totally still a thing today, even if white women, black women aren't breastfeeding white women anymore. But that's even something where I'm like, it's so important to even talk about um, black women literally sustaining your ancestors so you could come in here and be racist and tear up what you call America or whatever, you know, the free land. It's like, yeah, no, you literally used black women for that you literally use black women to feed slave owners <laughs> and 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 dry them out so they couldn't feed their own kids and that's why you know we have soul food because we had to make do with what we had and it's like 
the the fact that you know something so like so special that I, th- I think breastfeeding is so special and so amazing that's something that we can do and it just it, it it was it's just fascinating to me that they wanted the black slave to breast breastfeed the white baby and it's like well my milk was good enough to f- have your baby you know grow up and be a tyrant <laughs> like it, it's it's i think it's important for us to think about breastfeeding through history and how you know how actually how much stuff is rooted in the black experience and um and how much of that has benefited the white experience without them even noticing it so that's what i think that her that midwife does really cool stuff with that so i'll send that out too but that was another little tangent on breastfeeding and how blackness i guess is just in everything and we don't we don't notice it as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's important to re like to learn new history lessons and revisit things you may have forgotten about or reframe something in a mm-hmm. totally different way than you were taught or remember. And so, yeah, I mean, you have just touched on so many topics today. I know. I'm like, I feel this like is I great. Like- <laughs> <laughs> no, you did. I mean, that was amazing. Good. Um, I'm well, yeah, I took the notes of like those last things that you said. And then if you want to text the links to Sarah or whatever, we can put them in. Cause I would love to point people that direction. So. How, for sure. how, how can folks find you Kiki for doula services or, or education? Oh, I guess I have Facebook. I, I'm I'm very bad at being on the internet. I have uh and I don't have like a business like you gotta find me through like, you know, you gotta you gotta find me find me. But <laughs> yeah, right. Um you gotta know somebody to know somebody that knows me. No, I'm just kidding. But um I don't mind sharing like my phone number or my my email or my Instagram. I don't Let's like Facebook, know. but huh? Send us what you can. We'll put it in show notes. Yeah. Uh, it's Kiki Beswick, B-E-S-W-I-C-K, right? Yeah. I'll, I'll send you all my um, social media stuff. Yeah. Love it. Perfect. Thank awesome. you guys so much for listening to me and wanting Thank to know you. more. <laughs> Thank you for talking to us. You are you are so precious. Yeah. Thank I you love so you. much. I love you too, Megan. <laughs> yeah, I love you. I told... Kiki, Sarah, before you joined that, I, w- I was so jealous of y'all having that week and like how much oh, I, I would like to have been there with you. Yeah. It um, was so, I feel lucky that like, I feel like it was the last one or something ever. Like, I feel lucky that to have gone. It yeah. was. Yeah. And I was like, oh, COVID hit and I'm like, wow, they were thinking about, you know, switching the, or you guys were switching it to like the yeah. college or whatever. Right? And now I'm like, dang, COVID happened. It's really done. Mm-hmm. Like that was really special yeah. that I got to go. I feel really yeah. special. About it. <laughs> yeah. That was That's special. amazing. Love well, you take too. care yeah. of yourself tonight after that process it however you need to and like give yourself good self care, whether it's another great IPA or like a long good sleep or both. Yeah, right. Maximum. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you want to have conversations like this, let me know. I'm not. We will. 
I love sure. having tricky conversations. <laughs> awesome. uh, so do we. That's our jam. <laughs> Yay. Bye. Thank you so much for Bye. joining I'll us. See, thank you for asking me. And I'll send those links over in like five minutes. Awesome. Great. Yay. Okay. Bye. Good night. Recorded and mixed by Nathan Glaski. Art and design by Sarah Gillum and Gabe Rosser. Theme song composed and performed by Jake Wesley Rogers.